and I uh, got some time off. Uh, a couple of quick things before we dive into the passage. First off, I, I hope you will stop by uh, George's table and meet him. And I just, you know, I, I grew up in the church, and I grew up in a church that supported a ton of missionaries and uh, just had the world map with like a thousand pins on it and missionary cards, and, and, uh, which was great. But I just remember when uh, a family would come through or they'd make some announcement about a missionary family. I just I didn't know these folks. I didn't connect with them. And uh, I, I don't want you to feel that way. And so you may or may not get to visit with George or Martha, but I hope you'll get by and shake his hand and learn some more about what he does so that when we pray for them, you, you, you connect to that and like, I've met them. I know him. I hope that's going well. I hope God's using them. Um, second thing is we've got a family that's going to be away for a year. Uh, John David and Danielle Adams. And uh, this is your last Sunday. Is that correct? John David is going to be doing a, a surgical fellowship in Columbia, Missouri for the next year. And then is coming back. They say they're coming back. Okay. And uh, very glad for that. And so we'll miss him this year, but I suspect... Our lives will be so full that it'll go by quickly. Hope so. But um, y'all have been great. Love y'all. And we'll miss you this year, but very glad you're coming back. All right. Um, by the way, I'm Brian Habig. I work here. And um, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are looking at some different psalms this summer. Psalm 73 is what we're going to look at this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. The whole psalm is printed there. Trivia question. You probably have heard of one of the most famous American sermons from early America, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And for some reason, this is the one that gets put in all the anthologies. You don't get where he preached about God being love or heaven being full of love or anything like that. But does anybody know, you don't have to answer out loud, but does anybody know um, what passage he was preaching on? Because from the, if you've read... Even an excerpt of the sermon, you might think it's from Revelation and some passage about the abyss and lake of fire and that kind of thing. Um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was actually preached on one phrase from a verse in Deuteronomy 32. And it says, it's describing curses that come on people who break the covenant and ignore God. And the phrase is, their foot shall slide in due time. That's, that's the text. Their foot shall slide in due time. Now, this psalm that we're about to, to look at is actually another one that's not by David. Most of the psalms are by David. This one is by a man named Asaph. He's a Levite. He's of that tribe that gets to minister in the tabernacle and the temple. He's what we would call clergy. Um. There are two references to a foot slipping or sliding in this psalm. On the front, he's going to say, my foot almost slipped. And then he's going to describe the experience of those whose feet actually slip. Psalm 73. One other thing before I read this. This psalm does what a lot of Scripture does. And I want you to know this on the front end because it can, if you haven't heard this, it can be jarring to you. There are a lot of scriptures that will get up over the whole earth, almost panning out like a Google Earth kind of view, and it will divide all humanity into two camps. And it will use labels like the, the righteous and the wicked. Uh, 
God's people and the sinners, something like that. And here's the thing to understand. When it uses the label of the righteous, it doesn't mean these people are the people who always do the right thing. Far from it. But it means these people know God and they know that they need God and they need His mercy. That's the righteous. And then the wicked, it doesn't mean this is just uh, total chaos and there's nothing endearing about these people. These people may be incredibly endearing, but they do not know that they need God. And they do not look to Him for mercy. So those are the categories in this psalm. Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read you a little excerpt from a news piece. And I've seen several like this. This was a piece by NPR last summer, and the headline is, Facebook makes us sadder and less satisfied, study finds. 
Facebook's mission, quote, to make the world more open and connected is a familiar refrain among company leaders, but the latest research shows that connecting 1.1 billion users around the world may come at a psychological cost. A new University of Michigan study on college-aged adults finds that the more they used Facebook, the worse they felt. The study found Facebook use led to declines in moment-to-moment happiness and overall life satisfaction. And get this, the study authors did not get at the reasons Facebook made their test subjects feel glum. Glum is a good word. That's underused. But one of the researchers suspects it may have to do with social comparison. Quote, when you're on a site like Facebook, you get lots of posts about what people are doing. That sets up social comparison. You maybe feel your life is not as full and rich as those people you see on Facebook, he says. And, uh, and you may have seen other pieces like that, that, that research seems to be indicating this again and again. And I was reading another piece where a, a, a Christian was reflecting on this, and he used a phrase. Now, I, I love expressions, and I had not heard this one. Even, I, maybe it's been around for a long time, but I, I'd never heard it. And it, the expression was, don't judge your insides by somebody else's outside. That's good advice, but hard. Don't judge your insides by somebody else's outsides because you think about it. Other people's outsides, and what do you post? You post the the best thing about your outside, you know, the best meal, the best trip, the best whatever. Yard victory um, could be one. (laughs) You know, you you, you post the best about yourself. So that's people's outsides, and then you can't really see your outsides. You can look in the mirror, but you you can't see yourself the way other people see you. But you feel your insides, don't you? And it's like a perfect storm. Their outsides glaring at you and our insides feeling it and processing it and feeling inferior. Now, that feels like Psalm 73. Psalm 73 feels like somebody who is judging his insides at some level by other people's outsides. And there's sort of a process you see in this psalm is that on the front end, Asaph... He loses perspective, and then he finds it again. He regains it. So let's look at it that way. What was it like when he lost his perspective? What was it when he found it again? And when we look at both of those things, I, I kind of want to ask two questions. The first is, what is he seeing, and then how is he responding when he sees that? What is he seeing, and how is he responding? Now think about, that. Think about how the psalm starts. If I say... Really, I think she's a wonderful person and she's got a lot of great qualities. What's the next word I'm going to say? But. And we all do this. I mean, I, I have done this as much as anybody else. They're, oh, they're great. They're, 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 I love them. But. So you sort, of, you sort of say the good, true, you know, honorable thing on the front end. And then you really divulge what you really think and feel. That's exactly how this psalm starts. Look at the beginning again. I mean, this is, this is a Levite. This is clergy. So on the front end, like, okay, I'm going to affirm the orthodox true thing. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. All right, orthodoxy, check. Then what does he say? But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And there's that first foot slip. My steps had nearly slipped. 
Right, so let's look at this. He's saying, God is God. God is good. I do believe that. I started losing my perspective. And let, let's ask the two questions. What is he seeing and how is he responding? Just kind of overview first. Here's what he's seeing. Look in verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then look down in verse 12, kind of another summary statement. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, I just read the passage, so you heard that the, the description he gives as he looks around at people, and he says, I, these are people who do not know God. And they don't care that they know God. And they're not coming to God saying, wow, I need a lot of mercy. I need forgiveness. What are they like? Now, let's, let's cultural differences here. He says, number one, they have great bodies. And twice in the psalm he says they're fat. So to us we go, ooh, okay, I guess that's you getting your jab in at the, you know, at the way. No, that's a compliment. To us, fat just sends off alarms and, you know, run, run, run. In his cultural setting, what does that mean? Prosperity, just more than enough, doing great. They've got great bodies. And they just seem immune. They just seem bulletproof. You know, that like the per- sort of in our setting, the person over here who knows God and loves God, it's going to be like his friend or his child that gets killed in the car accident. And then the person over here who's just disobeying God with a high hand, they have a great life and everybody's doing well. Just kind of bulletproof. They're, they're, their children are turning out well. So they've got great bodies, they're bulletproof, and they're cocky. That, that, that's almost like just the, the adding insult to injury. What does he say? Verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They're not just talking big, they're like threatening. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. All right, so that's what he's seeing. That I'm watching the people who have no interest in you, God, and and their lives are great, they're doing well, they're rich, and they look good, and they're arrogant, and no one stops them. So, how does he respond? What's the first thing? Envy. He envies them. Let me read verse 3 again. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is so honest And it makes it into the hymn book of God's people. A worship song about, I looked at people who don't know the living God and I wanted to be them. I wanted their bodies and I wanted their stuff and I wanted their good life. I envied them. And then he says one other thing. I regretted the sacrifices that I had made. Look in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now, as a Levite, he literally would have done that. He's saying, what are we doing? What are we doing here? This little nation of Israel. Look at people out there having these great... What are we doing? Why am I handling sacrifices and sacred music? What are we doing? This is a waste of time. Verse 14, 
All the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And did you catch the contrast? In verse 5 he said, they're not stricken. Their lives are great. They dodge all the bullets. I'm stricken. And, now, as I was looking at this, it reminded me of a scene in um, It's a Wonderful Life. It comes on every Christmas. It's not a famous scene, but it's, uh, it's where the Bailey Savings and Loan has put up the, the loan money for a mortgage for this Italian family, uh, the Martinis, to have their first house. And so there's kind of this big house dedication And when they're doing this house dedication, this rich friend of George Bailey's pulls up, Sam Wainwright. He's the guy that, like, left Bedford Falls and just made a gazillion dollars. So he pulls up, and he looks awesome, and his clothes are awesome, and his wife is beautiful, and he's in the new car, and he's just cheerful, and he's doing great. And so he and Sam, they banter back and forth, and uh, and he drives off. He's doing great, and you see George and his wife walk back to their crummy car, And here's George. He's just killing himself. He wants to travel. He wants to live in New York. He wants to be an entrepreneur. He wants to travel the globe. He's in Bedford Falls just just pouring in to these ungrateful people. And he's walking back to this old car, and there's just a scene where the, the car door is open, and he just kicks that thing shut. And then it goes to the next scene, and no explanation is needed. I mean, haven't you felt that before? That's Asaph is he's just looking in his life and he's saying, look, I do believe these things. God is real. God is good to Israel. We are the chosen people. But it's like he's walking back from the temple and just here comes an Israelite cat and he takes a shot at him and just... And to connect the dots, um, this is where you and I and Asaph, we show our cards without meaning to. Because when we look around, and I'm I'm trying to be very careful about, like, it's not for us to judge who the wicked are and who the righteous are, all right? Please hear that. There are people in our lives where just over months and years we can can assess, we can ascertain that they they don't care about God. Uh, What's important to us is not important to them. That's just assessment. Or what Jesus meant by, by their fruits, you'll know them. When we compare ourselves, and they're doing great, and we've got this hard life, and they're not stricken, and we're stricken, and we envy them, and we regret the hard things that God is making us do, we show our cards. What are the cards? The way this was supposed to work, God, is if I serve you, you give me the life I want. We show our cards. It makes us mad. All right, that's when he lost the perspective. What's it like when he regains the perspective? Now, I want to ask those two questions. What does he see and how does he respond? But before that, real quickly, how did he regain his perspective? I don't want to leave this out. How and where did he regain his perspective? Very important. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, meaning all this some processing, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He regained his perspective in what you and I call public worship. And that's ironic because sometimes it's on the way to public worship that we most do the comparing. 
Now be careful here, because our church met for at night for two years. So don't assume when you're <laughs> if you're driving to morning worship and you're seeing all these people that you know these are the pagans of the city. Uh, for two years, these may have, may have been downtown Pres members walking around. But you know, sometimes on the way to worship, you're just thinking, oh, look, look at look at that guy. He's at, look, look at he's walking to a coffee house to like read the New York Times on his iPad, and it's just not a care in the world, and I've got, like, nursery. <laughs> okay, so what's it like when his perspective is rediscovered? First off, what does he see? He sees that there's a giant afterward for all human beings. And we say we know that. And we, we live by sight. We, we keep meaning not to. When he goes to public worship and he's reminded of the truth, what does he see about the great afterward of the people he envies? Verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Down in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You know, I mentioned sinners in the hands of an angry God. Did you know that Edwards read his sermons? He was not a pulpit, not a pulpit smasher. Read. Here's an excerpt. It would be dreadful. Here's how he might read it. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of God Almighty one moment. But you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever a boundless duration before you which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. Do I enjoy that doctrine? Is it robustly biblical? Yes, it is. Who talked about it the most? The dear Lord Jesus. And Asaph sees, I have a giant afterward. It's not just that they have a giant afterward. I have an afterward. What, what's, what's my afterward? Verse 24. Present, you guide me with your counsel, but future, and afterward... You will receive me to glory. That's, that's one of the strongest heaven texts in the Old Testament. For all that I'm seeing in all my flakiness, you will receive me into glory. So he sees that from being in worship. How does he respond? The first thing is this. He realizes, he sees something about himself. He sees, 
I've been reacting. You know, one of the classic distinctions between a human being and an animal is that animals act on instinct. I mean, they have some thinking capacity, but they just don't have the the ability to reason like we do. That's part of bearing the image of God. And, uh, you know, as a thinking human being, after a while, hopefully, unless you have a massive phobia, when a nurse or a doctor comes at you with a needle and you know this person is trying to help me or take my blood, you can, like, peacefully offer your arm. But most animals, you might give them a shot every day, and just every time they're just, you know, they, what, reacting. What, what, is, what does Asaph say about himself? He compares himself to an animal. Look in verse 21. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, okay, here comes the needle, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, I've been reacting to what I've seen rather than thinking. Rather than acting what I know to be true. I'm acting like an animal just reacting. What else does he see? And this, this is huge. He sees that, God, you are my portion. You are my portion. Why is that so important? You remember we said that Asaph was a Levite. He's clergy. And you may or may not know this from the Old Testament, but when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, you know, I'm getting my sides wrong. This is always the past. This is always the future. Okay. When he brings his people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land, God divvies out the people's inheritance by tribe. And he says that this is your portion. So, you know, tribe of Benjamin, here's your portion. Tribe of Issachar, here's your portion. But he's very clear, more than once in the Old Testament, to the Levites, the tribe of Levi, you do not get a portion. And God says why he does that. He says, you don't get an inheritance, you don't give a portion, get a portion, because I am your portion. You're going to handle the sacred things. I'm your portion. I'm your treasure. When Asaph says, God, you're my portion, that was already theologically true, but he didn't feel it. He didn't experience it. And now, when he sees not only their future, but his own future, and he's brought back to his senses, he says, This is real to me now. You're my portion. I, I want you to crush two verses together. I want you. There's a, paragra- a paragraph break, but I want you to cram them next to each other. Look in verse 22 and then verse 23. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. I was so dumb acted like I'd never heard these things, and I'm always with you. Now catch that. What is Asaph saying? Does God let go of my right hand when I lack faith? No. Does God let go of my right hand when I envy people who hate Him? No. 
what can we say this morning? Does God let, if, if you are a believer, does God let go of my right hand when I yell at my family? No. Does God let go of my right hand when I love my stuff and being comfortable more than I love Him? No. But can we be theological for a minute? Why did Asaph have that? If the whole Bible is going to fit together, let's be theological. Why does Asaph have that? Is it because he's good and he deserves for God to hang on to his hand? Asaph's sin and our sin is just as bad as anybody else's sin that's going to be punished one day. What do we know that Asaph probably didn't know? The reason that God can always, always, always hold on to your hand and not let go of it is because of what the Messiah would do for him hundreds of years later. Why do you and I know that when we look around at the world that we should, our hearts should break for and we feel inferior to it and we want this world to think that we're cool, why does God stay right there with us? Because Christ died to make that ours. And that's so important to Jesus that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, as He is about, His feet are going to lift off the ground to ascend into heaven. What's the last thing He says in Matthew? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We don't understand how important it is to remember that we have God We have the living God. We have the Son of God. He's right here with us. Do you believe that He'll be at the table with us? Unseen, He is with us. That's what Christ came to give to those who believe. Let me end with this. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on Charlie Brown, but... I've watched my share of Charlie Brown Christmas specials and some Great Pumpkin and stuff like that. But my understanding is that there's only one peanut strip where Lucy hugged Linus. And she's so hard on him. She's so mean. Lucy's so mean. She's such a bully. Calls him blockhead and all that kind of stuff. But there's this one strip, and this is so Charles Schultz, where Lucy's just teeing off about her lot in life, and, you know, Linus will kind of come in with his sage advice, and he says, maybe you should be thankful for the blessings you have. And she says, what do you mean what kind of blessings I have? And Linus says, well, for one thing, you have a brother who loves you. And the next pain, Lucy bursts into tears, and she grabs him. And the last pain, Linus says, every now and then I say the right thing. Uh, it says in the book of Hebrews that the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has every reason to be embarrassed by us. 
I would up it and say, who has every reason to be ashamed of us? The church is just sinful and inconsistent and an embarrassment. That we have an elder brother who is not ashamed to call us brothers. God is always with His people. In the future, we will feel that and experience it and live in it as we should right now. Let's pray together. Father, would you make what's true real in our hearts? And it may be that we walked in here able to say that you are good, you're good to Israel. We might have said we want to be pure in heart, but we don't feel these things, we don't experience them, we don't act out of them. Please help us. Even as we come to the table, would we have maybe more sense than we've ever had that you are with us, you love your people, you will not let us go. And the only reason we have this is because of your mercy in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.